0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Uh, okay, so we are um, now coming into the New Testament, and we're kind of taking this. Uh, I'm going to take the slow road through the New Testament, okay? Because we, we got there's a lot of things uh, to cover. There will continually be things that we keep coming back to and have to be reminded of. We've not yet even got to Jesus' birth. We're just sort of uh, pre, pre, precursoring uh, things to Jesus' birth, things that we kind of need to know, lay the foundations for. And the main reason is because, especially with what we're doing tonight, um, if you read the Gospels, you, you have four Gospels. And when you open your New Testament, I think for a lot of, especially new Christians, there is a lot of question as to why are there four? And why do they sometimes report events differently and say things like, you know, you know, this, that, and the other? And then there's also the concern, I think, before we even get into the birth of Christ, that each one of them open their Gospels differently. So here is the incarnation of the Son of God. Um, God takes on flesh and becomes man that's kind of a big deal, right? (laughs) I mean, all things considered, that's a huge deal, you know, (laughs) big, big deal. So you would think that like, well, let's spend, you know, the first 2,000 words of our gospel just talking about that. You know, that's probably what I would do, you know, I guess. But you find when you get into Mark, one verse, boom, we're in it. You know, and now all of a sudden Jesus is getting baptized, like within just a few verses, and there's no almost no time spent on it at all. And John talks about everything before the incarnation, and then like a verse on the actual incarnation itself, but there's no camels. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no wise men, there's no, you know, you know, Christmas story or or really not much of that in John. It's really Matthew and Luke that have that where we get most of the kind of what we would call the Christmas narratives or whatever you want to call that. And so uh, a lot of, especially new Christians, you get into these four Gospels and you go, why? why? Why this and not that? Why are there four? And various other things like that. And so I think it's important that we spend a good bit of time just, just looking at the different approaches that each Gospel takes. You have to understand a couple of things, first and foremost. They're not in disagreement with one another they might be, and often are, accentuating different details and wanting you to see something different, which is probably the reason why there's a different gospel. Because they're, they're, Matthew's looking at Mark and going, that all that's right, but also, you know, and, and go to John's statement in the Gospel of John, if, if all the books, if we just told all the stories, of everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So you kind of look at it that way, too, is that Mark tells his gospel in, you know, comparatively short amount of time, and so the other gospels kind of chip in, and this, and this, and this, and this, and then John comes in and goes, oh, also I'm going to tell about some whole different things, right? So it's worth our time to just consider how the various gospels lay out the... Anticipation of the incarnation of Christ and what it is that they're accentuating about him and how they're describing him to help make it make sense in our minds, hopefully. So, last week we looked at, the last two weeks actually, we looked at Jesus being listed in the first verse of Matthew as the son of Abraham and the son of David. So, two weeks ago was the son of David, and then last week was the son of Abraham. Uh, no, I, I think I strike that. Did I? I can't remember which one I did in which order. I think I did David last week. Anyway. Um, he, so he traces the lineage of Christ all the way back through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Judah, which basically sets Jesus up as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So. Jesus is coming in not just merely as one born King of the Jews. That was two weeks ago. He's the son of David. He's born King of the Jews. But also one who is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So what he means by that is that the promises the promises that God makes to Abraham are essential, which can be divided into three parts. First, there's the, the promise of offspring. He promises to give him offspring you know, offspring and his people will fill the earth. The second element of the promise is the land, and the third promise to Abraham was that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Those promises, what we're seeing in it, Jesus being the son of Abraham, is that all of those promises are coming to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So through Abraham, he says, all the whole world is going to be blessed. It's going to be reclaimed for the glory of God. Now, what we saw last week was that that is really a a novel concept to to some extent, because at the beginning, when he makes that promise to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, just 11 chapters before that, or just a few chapters before that, all of mankind is cursed. Say Adam and Eve sin, and, and he places everybody under a curse. Everybody, the earth, Adam and Eve, the devil, everybody, places them all under a curse. And so when we get to Abraham and he says, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, well, that's a miraculous turn in and of itself, that now there's going to be blessing bestowed on the world through Abraham. But what we find out in the New Testament, as Paul makes clear in Galatians, is that he doesn't say, through you and through your offsprings, with an S, meaning many, but offspring, meaning one. Paul takes that word offspring, he sees that it's singular, and he goes, it's one, and that person is Jesus. That's who he's talking about. The promise came to be fulfilled in Christ, and so all the promises of God, find their yes, their affirmation, and their fulfillment in Jesus, Paul says. Okay, so we've got the first verse of, of Matthew that, that is saying, hey, here's the son of David, uh, so he's king, and he belongs on the throne, and here he's this, also the son of Abraham, which means he's the recipient of all the promises of Abraham. This is the one that that's about. But Up to this point in our study of the New Testament, Jesus is so far placed within the family of Abraham and within the family of David. And so that means, just with that one singular verse, that he is born to a human family, that is Joseph and Mary, and is the human descendant of human ancestors, uh, David and Abraham, amongst many others. But the Bible is also going to tell us, through the other Gospels, and through Matthew as well, that Jesus is not merely human. He is more than just merely human. He is also, he's more than that. The New Testament is going to also, in the other infancy narratives, or the other stories of, of Christ's incarnation, is going to tell us that He is also the Son of God, and in addition to being human, being the descendant, the rightful heir of David's throne, being the proper offspring of Abraham, that through him the whole world will be blessed, that he is uh, of Mary, in that he is composed of her uh, DNA, you want to put it that way, um, and he is the, uh, obviously the adopted son of Joseph, he is also the son of God. And we see that in, even in Mary being told she's going to have a baby in Luke 1, 32-35. So I want to read, let's read that. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, well, that ratchets things up a bit, doesn't it? It's not just a kid who's born one time son of David, son of Abraham. This is a special kid, born to a virgin woman, born miraculously of the Holy Spirit, called the Son of God. Now, I think it's worth taking just a couple weeks and saying, what does the phrase Son of God mean? Here's the reason why I think that's important. Um, I was in a, a... um, what do you call it, an Uber, that's that's the word, an Uber, one time with a, a Muslim man, Muslim Uber driver. And he had some some sort of beads or something hanging from the mirror. And I knew they were representative of a religion. I suspected it was Islam, but I didn't know precisely. And so I asked, what are the beads for? And he said, um they are, I can't remember exactly what it was, some sort of prayer type uh, thing that they use. What is it? There it is. Okay. 99 Names of God. So uh, I, I asked him more about that. He started talking about his faith. And so I started sharing uh, my faith. And I said, what do you think about uh, Jesus? And he told me what uh, Islam says about Jesus. And I said, um, what if I told you he was the son of God? And he said, um, he wasn't the son of God. And I said, how do you know? And he said, God doesn't have a son. And I said, how do you know? <laughs> Which he didn't have a good answer for that. <laughs> because when you think about it, you go, how do I know that <laughs> God doesn't have a son? <laughs> Did he tell you he didn't have a son? Well, it just comes down to a difference between the Quran. So we, we went back and forth. But I think when it comes to the question of what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, if you put even Christians on the spot about that, I think many of them would say, you know, uh, well, and then, and then there's, mm, And then quickly you get into the Trinity and they would kind of go, I don't know how to explain this part of it, and then I, but then there's, right, so I think we kind of stumble around, and we don't necessarily know exactly how to describe it, so I think it's worth taking just a few weeks to really camp out on that phrase, what does it mean, the Son of God, and, and you might be surprised to know it's not just referencing one thing. That It, it, it actually has, there's, there's a range of things that it means, and they're all incredibly profound, but I think they also help us understand the Bible a little bit better. Once we understand what's being said about Him, some other pieces of Scripture might start to click in place. Some other things might start to make a little bit more sense um, that He is called the Son of God. So remember when Jesus poses the question, because you might have a question, what, well, does it really matter? I mean, does it really matter? Uh, what we think about Jesus and his sonship uh, of God. When Jesus uh, posed the question of the sonship of the Messiah to the Pharisees, they answered. So he, he asked them, who do you, who do you say that, this, that the son of man is? And he says, the son of David That's how they answer. And so then he asked, how can he be David's son and David's Lord? That is the question that he returns to them. This is in Matthew 22, 42 to 46. And I want to, let's just read that. What do you think about the Christ? That that is the Messiah, the anointed one, king, if you will. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, is a quote from a psalm, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, the Lord said to my Lord, is David speaking. The Lord said to my Lord, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I I did something, Robert. I hit something on this because I almost dropped it, and I don't know what that was. All right. But it's a cool trick, right? Uh, So... (laughs) Um, so if you get what, what Je- the question Jesus is asking here, they s- it's always been interpreted, this psalm has always been interpreted as a messianic psalm, that when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, that the one that the Lord is speaking to is the Lord of David, who is also the Messiah, the one to come. But then the Messiah is also understood to be the son of David. This is the question Jesus is posing to them. And so he says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I love that I love that little line at the very end. So I think this shows at the very least that there is great significance to what we think about the sonship of Christ. What does it mean that he is called son of? of anyone, first of all, but what does it mean that he is the Son of God? Obviously, we've talked about the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, but what does it mean that he's the Son of God? This is a question that Jesus poses to the Pharisees, and it seems that eternity is in the balance, hanging there, as he asks them that question, that they don't know how to answer. And, and, and it's fine if we can't answer the question, and God has not also told us, right? In which case we go, that's something that only God knows, right? There's lots of things, I'm sure, that God has not told us. And that's fine that we don't know those things. But in that He has told us, we're negligent if we don't know them. if We don't seek to understand them. So it, it is very important, is the answer to that question. It, it is really important that we understand this. There are two errors that are, I think, made often when we think about the sonship of Christ. We hear the phrase "son." Maybe we hear the maybe we, the whole thing "son of God," or maybe frequently we'll see him called the "son of man" in Scripture. He'll call himself that a lot in Scripture, and so frequently we'll see this. And there's two errors we can make when we hear that phrase. When we hear any phrase about Jesus being son. Um, the first is that assuming that all references to the son of God are simply referring to his deity well oh, well that's talking about his deity and when it's when it's when he says son of man that's talking about his humanity right that there's errors on both ends of that because that's not entirely true so the first is in assuming that every time we see the word son of God mentioned it's referring to his deity that's not true and the second is thinking that Christ's sonship only refers to his humanity well he's he's why is he son why is he not you know, whatever. Why don't we not call him something else? Well, must be because he's he's human. He's also human, uh, and that's also a mistake, um, as we're going to see hopefully over the next couple of weeks. The Old Testament uses "Son of God" in really four total ways, but two we're just going to highlight because I didn't want to talk about all four of them because they're not necessarily important for what we're talking about tonight. Um, The Old Testament uses Son of God in two really important ways. First is concerning Israel, and second is concerning the King. Uh, I want to read these two passages, because both of them are really pivotal for us understanding what the New Testament is saying, part of what the New Testament is saying, when it calls Jesus Son of God. Um, Look at Exodus 4.22. This is God speaking to Moses. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is also when he's, you know, beginning to, he's going to say the same thing later on when he's beginning to uh, bring on the tenth plague. But, um, 2 Samuel 7.14, this is, God making a promise to David. This is what we call the Davidic covenant. It's part of it. it. says, I will be to him a father. He's talking about David's son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, that's all well and good, but then, and so we're like, okay, there's Jesus. Is he talking about, well, not so fast. When he commits iniquity, we go, oh, well, he's not talking about Jesus. <laughs> I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Um it's too simple to say he's just talking about Jesus there, right? Obviously, because then he talks about him committing iniquity and disciplining with the rod and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's really talking about the entire line, the whole line of David's uh, progeny, his sons, essentially. He's talking about a kingly line that's going to come from David. One of those, the, the final one, is going to be Jesus, but, uh, and he is certainly going to be the son of God, but um, all of them are considered... His son. In in fact, if you were to just take a survey of many ancient Near Eastern cultures, Egypt and various other places, they would think of themselves, the Pharaoh or the king or whoever was the top dog in the land, would think of themselves as the son of God. They are king, after all. How can a king be born well, God has to do it, you know, because look how special I am. You know, that's kind of how they think of themselves. And so for someone to be king was to be, you are leading my nation. This is God speaking. You are leading my nation, and so you are my son. Today I have begotten you, David says in the, in the psalm. So, um, so, you know, it, the, the king is thought is in, those, in those terms. So, but what we're seeing is that throughout Scripture... Two really important categories for us understanding the Son of God is one, that Israel is called God's firstborn son. And then second is at the top of Israel, once they name a king and once God selects his king David, David is called God's son. And the people that come from David's line, once he makes the Davidic covenant with him, are called David's son, are called the Son of God. Okay, now, as we turn to the New Testament to examine the way the writers apply the term, this term to Jesus of Nazareth, it seems very clear that they're demonstrating how He fulfills these roles. Keep in mind, this is part one. Okay? So we're, we're, we're coming to the way John describes Him eternally, co-eternal to the Father, and things like that. We're coming to that next week. But, This week, we're just focusing on these two aspects of it. So the New Testament writers are keying in on Jesus being the Son of God, and they're they're looking back at the Old Testament, and they're seeing Israel being called the Son of God, and they're seeing David being called the Son of God, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, He is the Son of God. And some of that's going to be a little bit clearer in just a minute. So, Jesus is then going to fulfill the roles of both Israel as the Son of God and David as the Son of God. So, we'll see this in the New Testament with the first use of Son, and it's indirect. It's in Matthew 2.15. Remember, Herod comes in, and he decides to kill the babies. And uh, in, a, in a dream, Joseph gets wind of it and is told to go to Egypt, flee to Egypt, because Herod's about to kill all the babies in the land, two years of age or under. And uh, so, he, so they go. They flee to Egypt. And then it says this, at the end of that, they're fleeing to Egypt. It says, and the family, Mary, Joseph, and the baby, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So it's, it's sort of an indirect reference to Jesus being God's son, but it's about Jesus. And Matthew is looking back at the Old Testament and he's saying that back there, this this verse is fulfilled now because Jesus was sent down to Egypt. Okay, I want to read you the verse that he's referring to. It's out of Hosea. It's Hosea 11.1. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Now, let's pretend you don't have the New Testament and we didn't read Matthew 2 at all. We just have Hosea in the Old Testament. What is Hosea referring to there? When Israel was a child. Who is Israel? It's a nation of people. A group of people. And what is he referring to when Israel was a child I loved him, that means he chose Israel, and out of Egypt I called my son. What is that referring to? Exodus, right? Now, how many of you had prophecy of the Messiah on your bingo card for Hosea 11-1? I mean, not many. That's not one of those verses that you look at and, and, you know, the Bible scholars kind of go, you know, however many, I don't know how many they say off the top of their head, like, the you know, there's 486 prophecies about the Messiah and whatever, and, you know, they check them all off. Most of those are prophecies like you would think of, like, Jeremiah saying, I will create in you a new heart, or remove the heart of stone and put an in heart of flesh. And, like, you, you read that and you go, that is a prophecy because you're, the prophet is looking into the future, or God is telling him what he's going to do in the future, and he's telling the people that I'm going to do this on a future date. Hosea doesn't seem to be making a statement like that. Hosea seems to be making the statement about Israel in the past. He was my firstborn son. He was a child. I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And then Matthew comes in and goes, this fulfills that prophecy. And you're left going, what prophecy? That doesn't seem like it. So Matthew is applying this historical reference as a prophecy that is fulfilled when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus essentially back from Egypt after the death of Herod. And this is not the typical format that we're used to As we think of prophecy, that it's we normally think of it as predictive prophecy, that it's predicting something is going to take place. There's plenty of those in the Old Testament. By His stripes we are healed. We look at that and we're like, well, that's... You can't even hardly read Isaiah 53 without, you know, just seeing the cross in the New Testament. Right. So, but Hosea 11.1 just doesn't read like that. And why would Matthew then go back there and say, what... how is that a fulfillment of a a prophecy? Um, So more than merely a prediction, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is Himself true Israel. He is God's Son. That He is foreshadowed by Israel in the exodus from Egypt. So, this is a heart, this right here. I I I think Jesus as Israel or types in the Old Testament being fulfilled by Christ is one of the best things that you can attempt to understand, try to understand. I, I think it changes the way you read the Old Testament. I think it changes the way you read the New Testament. I think all of a sudden the Bible all starts to come into clear focus when you grasp this kind of concept. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things set up in the Old Testament, and that includes the nation of Israel. If you think about the nation of Israel, they are a people that God uh, made a people for his own possession, and he gave them... um, promises, he gave them uh, commands, they, uh, they were to follow, they would be punished if they didn't follow those things, and tremendous, tremendous blessing, they obeyed, right? If they, we, we could spend forever talking about all the things that they would garner, they would gain, if they obeyed. Did they? They didn't. So all these promises are out here. That the land. Was, I mean, what we could name them forever. There's tons of things that are promised to them that, are, that sometimes read as conditional promises. I'll, I'll give you this if you obey. And we read it and we go, well, oh, it's conditional. But then sometimes they read as unconditional promises. Well, he's going to do this, whether they obey or not. But then you see that they disobey and he doesn't give it to them. But they still stand out there as unconditional promises. It's it's like he's going to do this. How can something be both conditional and unconditional? Well, it's not until Jesus that we see how it can be conditional and unconditional. It is conditional on obedience, but it's unconditional in that one is going to obey, that there is going to be one that comes forward that perfectly performs all of the criteria that God places on the shoulders of Israel. Israel cannot do it. They've proven time and again they cannot do it. They go after idols. But then one comes along who is a Jew, who is David's son, who is the son of Abraham, who is the son of God, who is actually able to do all the things that were commanded of Israel that they could never do. So then I ask you, what does he get? What's his prize? All the promises. So why does Paul say all the promises of God find their yes in Christ? Because every promise made to Israel is given to Christ by virtue of his righteous obedience. Tracking so far? Okay. All right. So, yeah. So he's true Israel. He is the fulfillment of all the things Israel hoped to be, wanted to be. So when Matthew says this fulfills what was true of an entire nation, it's also now true of an individual, Jesus. He wasn't there. I mean... Practically speaking, he wasn't there when when Israel was led into Egypt and and then came out of Egypt. But now, in going into Egypt and coming out, well, by golly, he's walking straight through all the things that Israel went through. But what's even more than that is that following his identification as Israel there in Matthew... He is baptized by John. And when he does, he says something very interesting. Okay, I want you to look there with me in Matthew thir- three thirteen to 15 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now John is baptizing a baptism of repentance. So John is great he's doing awesome he's preaching in the river and he's doing fantastic and he's calling some people out and it's it's great right hellfire and brimstone right there in the river a bunch of people getting baptized it's a great old-fashioned revival and what shakes the apple cart altogether is the one identified as the son of god the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world jumps into the river and stands there and is like i'm ready to be baptized and john's like Wait, what? So he says, John would have prevented him, this is verse 14, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? In other words, you don't, what do you have to repent of? You don't need to repent. You're the Lamb of God. But Jesus answered him, pay attention, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Here is what is required at this moment through the preaching of John the Baptist for Israel. You must be baptized. And Jesus is saying, if it's required of Israel, it's required of me. Why? Because he's Israel. He's truly Israel. But further than that, not only is he representative of Israel as a whole, Israel is called out of Egypt. What do they go through when they go out of Egypt? They go through the Red Sea. They go through the sea. Uh, They go through the waters. Jesus then goes through the waters. What happens right after Israel goes through the waters, they go out into the wilderness where they are tempted by the devil for 40 years. Jesus goes out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Then he goes into the promised land with the message of the gospel, and do you know what his, the content of his preaching is first? Walking through the law of Moses from a mountaintop, telling them how you've heard it said in the law, but I'm telling you this. Taking the law of Moses and showing what it actually looks like when it's truly fulfilled they come to him and they say, you're throwing out the law of Moses. He says, don't accuse me of throwing out the law of Moses. Every I will be dotted. Every T of the law will be crossed. It will all be fulfilled by me. But I'm not talking about just not killing somebody. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm certainly not going to kill anybody. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about not even being angry with my brother in his heart in my heart i'm not talking about just not committing adultery i'm not even going to lust after another woman so he's walking through what it, what righteousness really looks like when it's fulfilled and he gets down to the end of chapter 5 in verse 48 and he says to them you therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect what does it mean to be true israel To fulfill all righteousness, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what Jesus is upholding as real righteousness that he, as true Israel, is about to accomplish. Tracking so far? Okay. Um, So Mark and Luke, so leaving that for just a second, Mark and Luke obviously agree with Matthew. Matthew no disagreement there or conflict or any of that kind of thing but they present another angle on what it means that Jesus is the son of god so matthew is really focused on jesus being the son of god being being israel being true israel as the son of god <coughs> but <coughs> excuse me mark and luke take a different approach and Uh, on Jesus being the Son of God. As an example of that, Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus is unique in that right after the baptism, Luke goes into a genealogy. He starts tracking Jesus' genealogy, which Matthew puts at the very beginning of the Gospel, Luke puts in chapter 3. He puts well into it after Jesus is already baptized, and he goes all the way through uh, the genealogy of Jesus. And it's probable that luke puts <clears throat> that genealogy right after the baptism to clarify what god means when he says when he calls jesus after the baptism my beloved son look at luke 3:22 the holy spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased sorry i got to grab a bottle of water. <clears throat> All right, so then right after he says that, Luke then goes into a genealogy of who Jesus is and tra- tracks his, his genealogy of what that means that he's, he's his son. Luke's introduction of Jesus... Oh, he's got me... That's, thanks. <laughs> no, it's okay. This one's cold. It's good. Um, <laughs> so Luke's introduction of Jesus uh, through the angel to mary is where i'm at uh, indicates that jesus being the son of the most high is the fulfillment of the promises to david we saw that a couple weeks ago there in second samuel 7 12 to 14. so the son of david is the son of god and that the davidic prince this one coming forward is going to fulfill the role of israel as god's son but Then, when he gets to the genealogy, Luke does it a bit different. He starts with Jesus, for one, and he works his way backwards. That's one thing he does. There's some other things he does we're not going to cover until we get there to the genealogy, which we're not there yet. Um, The the, another thing that he does is he tracks his lineage uh, all the way, obviously, through Israel's history, but then all the way up to Adam— And he identifies Adam as the son of God. So Luke uh, 3.38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he he tracks Jesus' lineage after he is called in baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He tracks his lineage then back through Adam, who is the first, really, son of God. Um, Okay, so thinking about that for just a second, Mark, following his depiction of Jesus' baptism, uh, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness where he is not only tempted by Satan... But he says that he was out there with Satan and the wild beasts, which is weird, right? Look at Mark 1 12 to 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Oh, and by the way, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Isn't that weird? Hey, you think, uh, let me say this, let me, uh, and you probably won't believe me until we go through every phrase of the, of the Bible, there's nothing that's a throwaway. Just, look, if you're inclined to think, maybe you get to it and you go, well, it may not be a throwaway, but I don't know what it is. Okay, fine. Just begin with the assumption that every phrase is meticulous that it's chosen for a reason. So when you see, that's the Bible study 101, (laughs) first premise, begin with the assumption, every word is there for a reason. And it couldn't be another word, it needs to be that word, okay? Just begin with that assumption, and you'll be a lot better off, okay? So when you see, and he was with the wild animals, Right after, and in conjunction with him being the Son of God, him being descendant of Adam, uh, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased after his baptism, same in Mark, same in Luke. What, what would be the purpose of throwing in the phrase that he was out there with tempted by Satan and he was there with the wild beasts? What happened to Adam? Adam was tempted by the wild beasts too. What did Adam do? succumbed to the temptation. What did Jesus do? Endured the temptation. So, there is a a theme running through what it means to be the Son of God. And we've seen some of that fleshed out as as the Son of David. He is an heir. He is a king. He is a descendant. He is rightful heir to the throne, so he is that. He is Israel, they're also called the Son of God. So He is is Israel. He is true Israel. And Matthew shows Him walking through all the things that Israel does. But Mark and Luke also, in addition to those things, say, yes, He's all those things too. But like Adam was the Son of God, Jesus is also the new and better Adam. Unlike Adam, who is in the garden and is tempted by the serpent, and succumbs to the temptation, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil himself, taken to a hilltop and shown the kingdoms of the world. Taken to the top of the temple and said, you don't want to throw yourself down. In the midst of, at the end of, The 40 days of hunger and fasting will turn these stones to bread. Tempted by the devil himself, and he doesn't give in. Not only did Israel give in, they gave in because their father Adam gave in. But Jesus, the true Israel, walks through the same wilderness, the same temptation, the same everything that's required of Israel, except even to a greater degree, And not only does not succumb to the things that Israel did, but endures without sin. So that it's the author of Hebrews that can come in and say, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a high priest that's not able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He made himself weak. He took on flesh. He fasted for 40 days and then was tempted by the devil. He he knows what weakness feels like. He's been where you have been. He's seen the kind of temptation you have endured. And yet he did it without sin. And that makes him our high priest. That makes him qualified to be our high priest. Because he dominated the wild beast unlike his father, Adam. or Unlike Adam. So Jesus then, to summarize all that, is the man who stands as true Adam, as the ideal son of David, true David, you might say, true and faithful Israel. This is why the promises of God made to Israel, made to David, made to Abraham, and even, yes, the promises made to Adam find their yes In him, he, as one man, fulfilled all the stipulations of all the covenants throughout the Old Testament. Then the question remains, Well, how is he able to do that? Well, that's where John's going to come in. Well, the rest of the Gospels are too, but that's where John's going to come in at the beginning of his Gospel and set, how is he able to do that? But we beheld him. As the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, so, questions? Yes, James. mm-hmm um is it so he asks, is it when Jesus says you have heard but i say is that equivalent to saying you don't believe um i would i would say let me say no but let me qualify that <laughs> that It's not that I think that the people there believe him and are taking him at his word. Uh, When Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you've heard it said, but I say, he's commenting on the teaching of the day from the Pharisees in obedience to the commandments. And so there's some argument about this, but I, I don't think that he's saying that everything you've ever believed is wrong. I don't think that he's saying that. Maybe some take him to say that. Like in his day, some people take him to say that. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying this is the prevailing teaching of the day. And Moses is laying out a law that says, You shall not murder. God is laying out a law through Moses, saying, You shall not murder. But I think what Jesus is doing is saying, The righteousness of the law like if we're speaking from a God perspective, the righteousness of the law is knee-high to a grasshopper, right? That's the level of righteousness we're talking about. You can't do this. We're just talking, don't kill somebody, all right? That's this. But what does that law actually mean? So today we might use the phrase, what is the spirit of the law? Is the spirit of the law that... God doesn't want you to kill somebody? Is that merely it? Or is the Spirit, He doesn't want anger in your heart toward anyone? That seems to be the Spirit because if you go back before the fall of Adam, that seems to be the precedent. No anger in your heart toward Eve. Eve, no anger in your heart toward Adam. They wouldn't even think of such things, right? It was not there. If you go into the king, you if you were to just be right now taken into heaven, John, like John in Revelation, you just get a glimpse of heaven, you were to see your ancestors, people there, and all the people that you've ever known and, and whatever, and other people you didn't, how would they act towards each other? Would they just simply go along to get along and not murder each other? Or would they be at peace with one another completely? No anger in their heart at all toward one another. Well, it seems to be then that what Jesus is saying is, you've, you've heard it said this in the law of Moses. And, and that's what the law of Moses says. But I'm telling you that's not even close to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is here. So when you accuse me of not doing the law of Moses and throwing out the law of Moses, not only am I going to cross every T and dot every I, I'm going to fulfill the law so much that it is God-level righteousness. That's why at the end of five he says, You must be perfect, therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. So he's he's telling you, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to actually fulfill the, the full thing, the whole picture, not just the little tiny bit that you've been given and can't accomplish. Does that, does that make sense? So I think I don't think he's necessarily saying. You just don't believe me. You know, I think he, I think he's introducing what he's doing in his ministry and why it is that you should repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which he says in chapter 4. So that helps. Timothy very quickly cuz we got to go. Heart level, yeah. Yeah. Well, they thought they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'll you'll hear frequently in a um, lot of a lot of atheistic No, the New Testament is is taking the Son of God that the pagans mean, and they're he's, they're blowing it up to even greater proportions. The, the you know Julius Caesar means that he is God has created him, that he is descended from God, and he's that's who, where he belongs is in the pantheon, you know, or whatever. Um, but you know, you'll see this frequently in all kinds of atheistic literature. Is uh, well, lots of people. Claim to be resurrected, lots of kings claim to be resurrected and be born of a virgin, and all these kinds of things. And yeah, there's an adversary called the devil. And what kind of lie would you create? But not only that, the New Testament is is actually showing you that all of those narratives that have been about kings before were false. That's what the New Testament is saying. So people that say, like as an atheist, well, well, lots of people claim to be born of a virgin, and lots of people have claimed to you know, rise from the dead, and you know, all these kinds of things, and lots of people have claimed to be you know, from God, and, and all, all this, especially kings and things like that. Jesus isn't new. He's just one of them. The New Testament knows that. Some of them were before Jesus, and some of them were after Jesus, but the New Testament knows that that's the world's depiction of a king, They know that and they're saying, yeah, but if you open Julius Caesar's tomb, you know what you're going to find? Bones. If you open Jesus's tomb, you know what you're going to find? Nothing. That's the difference. And honestly, if the bones of Jesus were still there, we wouldn't even have a New Testament. So they're making a point about that very thing. And they're saying, yeah, there's been lots of narratives. All of them are false. This one actually is true. So they're commending that to you. So it's, it's intentional. Believe me. Let, let's pray. And let's go. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time that we can spend together just thinking deeply about Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, I, I pray that you help all of these things just seep in as we Uh, Turn page after page after page of the New Testament. Um, No doubt, many things that we will never talk about or that I don't understand. um, But I pray that the things that we are able to see and able to glimpse, they seep into our hearts deep down. Not to give us an arrogant kind of puffed up sort of knowledge, but a knowledge that draws us closer into you, deeper into worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.